Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We're continuing our journey uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be finishing it up in the next couple weeks, and then we'll be talking for most of the month of September about our vision and values as a church. But for now, this morning, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And as you're turning there, um, please feel free to use page 10 here in the bulletin for the ESV translation. You're welcome to pull out your smartphone. The ESV app is very user-friendly, highly recommend it. Or you can reach down into the chair right in front of you and grab one of those dark Bibles there. And this passage is found on page 523. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. Now, as you're turning there, I want to kind of open up with a phrase, and I wonder how often we've heard something like this. She's a God-fearing woman. You know, calling someone God-fearing used to be a compliment. And I'm wondering, you don't have to raise your hand, but when's the last time you actually heard someone use that in casual conversation to describe someone as a God-fearer? You know, the Bible talks about holding God in fear as a good thing. But at the same time, you know what one of the most common, in fact, if you counted them, probably the most common command given throughout Scripture is, don't be afraid. And then Jesus' perfect love, we're told in the New Testament, casts out fear. So we have this amazing complex thing that fear is. And here's why I bring that up, because the idea of fear is the undertone of this passage in Ecclesiastes today. As we read it, I want you to pay attention how often this very short text how often this text reminds us that we don't know what's going to happen. And what is our typical response to the unknown? It's fear, isn't it? So the big question before us today is this. Are we going to fear the unknown or are we going to fear God whom we do know? All of us who have placed our faith in Jesus face this issue. And when the unknown bears down on us, will we fear it, which is foolishness, or will we fear God, which is wisdom? Now with that in mind, let's turn now together to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And it sounds like there might be thunder happening during the sermon. I wish I could say that I planned that, but you know, I didn't. So let's pray. All right, let's read God's word together. <clears throat> Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north or to the place where the tree falls, there it will be. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, in the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us that we might know you. And so we pray, Father, that as we come before your word this morning, you would once again send your spirit Open it up to us that we might know your truth, know your grace, know ourselves, and that you would change us, make us more like Jesus. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so the pastor philosopher of Ecclesiastes, writing either Solomon himself or under the guise of Solomon, we're not really sure. This pastor philosopher tried all the different ways to make life work, looking for resources to deal with the frustrations of life under the sun. And having tried them all, starting in chapter 9, he then makes the case to God's people to live in joy, to rest in the approval that God lays on his people, that that is the secret to life. He even tells us to go so far as to enjoy our joy because we really have a problem enjoying it. To really let yourself be happy in the gifts that God gives you. Ecclesiastes calls doing that wisdom. And then we meet the villain in our story the fool, the voice of the critic, the little Puritan in our head who does everything it can to rob us of joy, to make us doubt the approval of God that we have, to keep us kind of content to have gospel information in our heads, but never really believing the gospel in our hearts and diving in. Last week, we looked at a back and forth between the joyful voice of the wise and the condemning voice of the fool, and today we're going to look at the results of that conversation, how what the foolish voice ends up manifesting in our life versus what the wise voice ends up manifesting. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this, fools fear it, but the wise face an unknown future with hope. So we're going to see that the wise walk forward in the approval of God, trusting God's gracious character, and so they have hope in an unknown future. So we jump right in in verses 1 and 2 with share the joy, and it starts out with this weird cast your bread upon the waters, and I have visions of people taking loaves of bread down in the James and just throwing them, right? You know, some, it's a weird metaphor. Some say it's from nautical commerce. It's a reference to send your ships out with goods to sail, to let them sail to sell. That's hard to say. He goes, and it takes a minute for that prophet to come back. And we see in 1 Kings 10 that Solomon himself did this, and we're told it takes three years for this fleet to come back with profit. Okay, maybe that seems a little obtuse. To me, and kind of reaching for some context, far more likely is if you remember from last week, chapter 10, verse 19, told us the voice of wisdom living in joy said, bread is for laughter. We saw that was a reference to feasting in community, to living with joy with others. That's wisdom. And so expanding on that theme here, when facing the unknown, set your resources free to create joy. This, this bread that's given to you for last, laughter, cast it out now among others. And he has to say it that way to us because as we said before, what's our typical response when we're afraid? We hoard resources, don't we? We, we, we kind of go inside of ourselves and we want to be careful. We make sure we have everything like we need it. And here he says, no, in the unknown, when you're tempted to fear, release your joy. Don't hoard resources. And to make sure we get it in verse 2, he says, give a portion to seven or to eight. Now, if you've been around church world a while, you know that there's this weird thing going on with numbers and supposedly three means something and, and seven is supposedly the number of perfection and eight. You know, none of that is in scripture. You can't find that anywhere. And I've never read primary sources that say that. So we're going to take that speculation and put it aside. And instead, we're going to focus on what we have in front of us. And this word portion 
is really important and we've seen it before. If you remember when he takes this twist in chapter nine, he says, look, God comes to you in a hard life and the gifts he gives you are your portion of joy to enjoy. And this word portion kind of comes through Ecclesiastes to be, here's what God gives you, take it. The analogy we used was you go to a birthday party, you don't get the whole cake, but you get a portion. It's enough, it's satisfying. If you're a glutton like me, you always want more, but you're content to have this portion. And so what he's saying here is, this is your portion. And you take it, and not only do you enjoy it, you cast that portion out and spread joy to others. And did you catch why? This is kind of crazy. Verse two tells us because we don't know what the next bad thing coming is. We don't know what disaster is next. This is lavish, enthusiastic giving of yourself even when you expect bad things to come. The wise person, the person grounded in God's approval is able to give even when things are hard and they expect them to get harder. Oh, that is so unlike how we naturally are, isn't it? In the face of uncertainty, in the face of challenges, in the face of things getting harder and harder, our tendency is what? Hunker down, cut off relationships, let's close ourselves in, let's get some control of our life back, and then maybe we can get back out again. But for now, let's circle the wagons and let's put all defenses and shields at full, right? Ecclesiastes tells us here that's foolishness. I remember as we were going through church planter training, you know, they had a bunch of church planters in, in a place. These are people who committed to do church planting. We were still trying to discern what God had in store for us. And then remember the trainer got up there and he said something along the lines of, attempt something impossible, something so crazy that if God doesn't show up, it's gonna be a disaster. And the short version of our church planting experience was we did, he didn't, it was. And as we were being delivered from that disaster, I remember telling some friends, man, things are going way too well right now. Just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Something bad's gonna happen. I wanna be careful. Because that foolishness, that hoarding voice was deep inside of me saying, you don't know what bad thing's gonna happen. So don't spread out your joy. Hold it in, be careful. See, but the wise person, unlike me, trusts in God's character. They face an unknown future resting in a known God who has shown himself to be joyful, approving, and gracious. See, and rooted in that understanding, what Ecclesiastes calls that wisdom, rooted in that, it gives us substance. It gives us solidness in life to face the unknown. So we're not afraid to unleash resources of grace and share the joy. And that's exactly what we need because life is uncertain, isn't it? We don't know what may fail. So share the joy, verses one and two tell us, because fools fear it, but the wise face an unknown future with hope. And then we see in verses three through five that we don't know what God is doing, so we have to use wisdom. Verse three reminds us that, hey, just like looking outside right now, you can tell when a storm is coming. It's not that hard. You also know that after the thunder and after the lightning, any trees that had been blown over, they're just gonna stay there. They're not gonna pick themselves back up, right? We know how nature works. That's verse three, pretty simple. Then it gets a bit more difficult in verses four and five. And the question of verse four and five is this, is will we use what we know, the simple knowledge of verse three, will we use what we know to walk in wisdom 
or will we use what we know to reinforce our own fear? Here's what I mean. Look at me at verse 5 together. Verse 5 says this. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls in there, verse 5. We don't know the path of the wind or how life comes to a baby. So too we don't know what God is going to do. So we don't, even to this day, we don't exactly know how that spark of life works and all of a sudden, you know, life happens in the womb. But we still have children in the face of that unknown, right? It doesn't paralyze us. That's the analogy he's getting here. So ending last week in verse 20, we saw that what we fundamentally think about God determines if we listen to the voice of the fool or if we listen to the voice of the wise in our head. If we tend to think of God as a rigid taskmaster who only gives his approval after we've proved worthy, then we're susceptible to the foolish voice of the grace denier. If we believe that God himself is joyful and gives us his approval by grace, then we're much more willing to listen to and follow the voice of wisdom the grace approver. So here in verses four and five, it kind of is a gut check for us. What we bring to these two verses determines what we read out of them. It reveals what we think about God. We don't know his works, it tells us, but we we don't know what he's doing. And verse four puts that into action. Here's what I mean. If we bring a positive view to verse four and five, here's what happens. Farmer grabs his bag of seed. He looks at the weather. It's a bit windy. Should he plant or should he wait? What's the big deal? Okay, so he's delayed a couple days. Okay, seed. What's the two things you can do with seed? One, you can plant it. Anybody want to guess what the other one is? You can eat it. It's food, right? So you're either here in this subsistence culture, he's got a pile of food, and he's going to throw it in the dirt and hope it becomes more food. So he wants to be very careful. It's a windy day. I don't want to mess up my sowing. Or later in the season, if it's going gonna, it's gonna to rain, you don't want to harvest, and then it rains on your harvested crop because it, it gets moldy and rotten. You don't want that. So in verse five, 4 and 5 here, from this perspective, this is the farmer who sees God as gracious. He uses what he knows of nature in verse 3, what he thinks of God in verse five, and so what does he do in verse four? He walks confidently in wisdom and he refrains until better conditions. This is a positive interpretation of verse four. That's in the text, we can do that. But there's also a negative interpretation that is just as faithful to the text, and it's this. The foolish sees God as a taskmaster. They walk into the unknown riddled with fear because they listen to the voice of the fool in their head. They grab their bag of food, Fear and trembling, should I plant this? It's a bit windy. Later in the season, it's a bit rainy, should I harvest? And seeing God as a taskmaster, they use what they know of nature in verse three, what they think of God in verse five, and they delay in fear in verse four. Let's just eat this seed instead of planting it. Can you see how both interpretations are right there in this text? See, the ambiguity is there on purpose to force the issue on our hearts. What do we bring when we read these verses? Is God for us or is God against us? Can we walk wisely into the unknown or must we delay because it's just too scary? Boys and girls, still in the room, this is why you're afraid of the dark right here. 
You don't know what could be hiding in that unknown dark. And so your mind makes up all sorts of scary things, doesn't it? See, but if we believe God is for us, boys and girls, then we can be brave when we face the dark. And adults in the room, we may not be as afraid of the dark anymore. But notice, we know ourselves, right? Our minds like to fill the unknown with all sorts of scary things too, huh? We get thunderstruck by going down that path of what ifs, the what ifs that can go wrong, right? See, gospel wisdom rooted in approval through Jesus Christ gives us courage to walk in joy into the unknown, not fear. Foolishness scares us into waiting until everything is perfect because we don't trust an unknown future to a taskmaster God. Whereas those who, can, who trust that God is gracious and kind can trust an unknown future to that known God. See, the voice of foolishness denies God's gracious character to us. It leaves us adrift in a sea of the unknown. And in that scary place, in the face of the unknown, what do we do? We become control freaks. We try, to, we try to find certainty anywhere we can just to get some sort of handle on this scary, unknown world. And most religions outside of Christianity appeal to that exact desire for control. Here's the complicated religious stuff you have to do. Here's all the ceremonies you have to jump through. Do all this stuff, and then the deity will perform. You did what he wants, he'll do what you want. Input, output, very simple. And it gives us a sense of control. And we Christians try so hard to do that with Christianity, don't we? Oh, dear God, please do this and I will whatever. Or even worse, Lord, I did this. How come you're not performing? That's appeasement, seeking control in the unknown. It's not living in the reality of the God of grace. It's foolishness. It's not wisdom. See, the wise person basking in the friendship of God, we're told at the beginning of chapter 10, the the person who is now friends with God because of his approval he gives us in chapter nine, we don't have to control everything. We can let it go like in verse four and just say, let's see what happens in wisdom. Refrain or not, I know that God is in control. I want you to feel this. I wanna give you an illustration of this. I'm gonna show a scene real quick or a picture from a relatively famous movie. Hopefully you recognize this. Boys and girls, when the picture comes up, you tell me where where this came from, okay? Here we go. All right, boys and girls, where's this from? I wanna hear it, come on. Thank you, Finding Nemo, very good. So this is Marlon, Nemo's dad, and this is Dory. And if you recognize this scene, that's a giant tongue that they're on because they're inside a whale. If you remember what happened, Marlon loses his boy, finds out his boy is like hundreds of miles away. He's a little clownfish. He can't swim that far. He is despairing. So his simple friend Dory sees a whale, claims she can speak whale, asks the whale to help them, and then the whale swallows him. And Marlon is like, we just got eaten. It's over. And Dory's just having fun. Turns out the whale swims the hundreds of miles that they couldn't do on their own. He gets them there. He's now ready to deliver them. And to deliver them, he has to spit them out. And to spit them out, they have to go down the digestive tract a little bit. And Marlon is like, that's eating. No, we're not going down. He's a control freak like many of us. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's afraid of the future. The next step is super risky. And here's key. He doesn't know the character of the whale. 
he just cannot take the risk. And so he screams out, how do you know something bad's not going to happen? And if you know the scene, Dory just answers with very simple wisdom. She goes, I don't, and jumps. <laughs> I love it. And this is where so many of us Christians live our lives, isn't it? Even though we confess faith in Jesus, even though we say we believe the gospel, we don't really believe the gospel in our chests. The foolish voice of the grace denier is just too loud, and so we never just let go and rest in the approval of God. We try to control things ourselves in the face of the unknown. See, if not rooted in the joyful wisdom of God, we can't just get out of our own fear. It's too overwhelming. Our desire to know and control is too powerful. And so we yield to the foolish voice of the grace denier over and over. Instead, Ecclesiastes comes and offers us a picture of listening to the wise voice of grace, telling us that God is gracious, wants us to have joy so we can walk into the unknown. See, fools fear it, but the wise face an unknown future with hope. And then finally in verse six, he brings it all together with the rainbow connection. We don't know what may succeed, so work hard in hope. Look with me at verse six, look what he says. He says, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So back then, it was way too hot in the middle of the day, so most farmers, they either sowed in the morning or they sowed in the evening. It was just kind of family tradition, whichever one they did. You didn't do it at both times. But here, verse six says, in the face of uncertainty, the wise farmer in hope does both. Why? Well, before we spread everything out because we just knew bad things were coming on the horizon, right? Verse two, we don't know what disaster is gonna happen. Here, did you notice what the assumption is? God's gonna prosper so let's give him more to prosper. See, the principle is when facing the unknown, the wise do twice as much. Why? Because we don't know where God's going to bless. See, when we assume God is going to prosper us, it spurs us to greater activity. You know, I love how earthy and practical Ecclesiastes is. It's been one of the things that's been very refreshing to me personally going through this, how it's just, it is so practical. You can't just spiritualize it. Like just a couple quick examples from just last week. Chapter 10, verse 17 speaks about how wisdom makes us literally happy and how in church world, happy sounds like almost a bad word. Almost, it's too superficial. It's not serious enough. Say, say joyful, right? Or say something, but happy sounds superficial. But it told us, the wise are happy. Chapter 10, verse 20, spoke of how wisdom brings success is how the ESV translated it. It's actually the word for profit. It's a commerce word. It means success, like here's more money. This will be profitable, make your life better. And verse six here continues the theme. Since we don't know which God is gonna prosper, we could translate it, make successful. We could translate it, make pleasant. We don't know, and notice, it didn't say we don't know if God will make this work or not, but how many of us read it that way because our inner fuel, fuel, uh, fool took over, right? It's not what verse six says. What does verse six say? Verse six says, we don't know which. Is, it gonna be, is he gonna bless that one or is he gonna bless that one or is he gonna bless both? The chance of non-blessing isn't even in verse six, but how many of us read that in there? Because we take what we think of God and we read it into the scriptures. See, in wisdom, 
Verse six tells us we should assume good is coming because God is a God who likes to bring joy to his people he approves. And so if we believe that, we lay a foundation for his blessing all over the place. Now I wanna make sure that you are not hearing what I am not saying, okay? This is not about salvation. This is not about, so you better work doubly hard to get God's grace so you can get into God's kingdom. It's not at all what's happening here. This is about those who already live under the approval of God from chapter nine, verse nine. God has already approved you. People like us, united to Jesus by faith. This is about us knowing more of that gospel in our actual lives, living in the reality of that approval. What Ecclesiastes has been calling wisdom. The unknown should drive us to a working hope instead of a delaying fear, is what he's telling us. Stories told of two salesmen sent to Africa after World War II. Don't know if it's just a a business parable or if it actually happened. First salesman gets there, immediately sends back a telegraph. No one here wears shoes, returning by next flight. Second salesman gets there, they get a telegraph. No one here wears shoes, send more shoes. Thank you, that's a little funny. See, the question that this verse makes me ask is which one of these guys are we? When we look out, let's just put where we live, when we look out at an increasingly pagan culture, I think many of us would be like the first guy. Forget it. Our godless culture is closed to the gospel. Let's go home. But those whom Ecclesiastes calls wise who get the gospel of grace, who have a risky, courageous hope. They look at our increasingly pagan culture and say, wow, this godless culture knows nothing of the gospel. It's wide open. See, which perception is wisdom according to this passage? In fact, let's just travel down this hypothetical for a little while. You realize it could be that our country is not post-Christian at all. I could make the case, you want to email me, let's have coffee and I'll make it for you. I could make the case that America is still very much pre-Christian. Our land has been Christianized on the outside. Absolutely, there is a veneer of social pressure to act Christianly, whatever that means, and you were judged very harshly if you didn't go to church, and so that was kind of enforced. So yeah, church attendance used to skyrocket. I'll give you that one, but I would say I want to see evidence of there being a time when the majority of our country embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and lived out the gospel. I I don't see that in history. It could be that the Holy Spirit has yet to make that happen. We don't know which will prosper. Are we about seeing the historical reality and looking at the Holy Spirit and saying, send more shoes? Or are we, this is too hard, just take me home. See, this text reminds us in grace that the gospel empowers our hope to get to work. Here's how an older, wiser, more godly man than me named Phil Riken, here's how he put it. He said this. He said, live boldly and creatively. Try something new. Be a spiritual entrepreneur. Even if you are not completely sure what will work, try everything you can to serve Christ in a world that desperately needs the gospel. See, instead of being thunderstruck by all the scary what-ifs out there, the wise dig deep where God has put them because they don't know which thing in their life God's gonna prosper. 
Taking the analogy to extreme, verse 6 is calling us to be venture capitalists for the gospel. Investing in relationships here and here and here and here, hoping that God will prosper one of those into a gospel opportunity. See, we can have this kind of hope, this real, robust, powerful hope in our lives because although each one of us is guilty before a holy God, we can rest in his approval because in his grace, Jesus Christ came and voluntarily lived the life of righteousness that God requires. He, he lived the life that God demands of us to earn that approval. And then he voluntarily submitted himself to die for the sins of his people. Jesus Christ did not earn the wages of sin, which is death. He voluntarily gave himself up to die the death that you and I deserve to die. Again, to earn our approval for us before God. So we're forgiven, we're given his righteousness, and in the resurrection, this proves that God has accepted that transaction. So we can have new life in Jesus, resting in God's approval and have hope. I mean, just like the farmer in this passage, you realize that Jesus risked his life to go into the ground. He put himself into the ground in hope. The human Jesus followed the voice of wisdom, ignored the voice of the fool in his head, and the book of Hebrews tells us he died in faith, trusting but not knowing the promise of the resurrection. That is why so much emphasis is put on the reward Jesus gets after his resurrection because he did trust his unknown future to a known God. And now united to him by faith, you can have that same wisdom, that same trust. Oh, forget everything you've called religion. Forget everything you think you know about Christianity. Just place your simple faith and trust in Jesus. And that voice of wisdom will become more and more powerful than your head. Oh, and don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. Now, oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you confront us with texts that are enigmatic, weird, and yet so gloriously challenging. We pray, Father, that you would give those of us who know you, who have been granted your approval, that you would help us, Lord, to not be content to know the trivia of the gospel, but to dive in with our hearts to taste and see that you are so good. We pray, Lord, for those here today who do not know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, you would be true to your promise to draw all people to yourself. Or would you do your work of salvation even now that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here as it is in heaven. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.